Chapter Twenty Nine of Northwest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Northwest by Harold Binloss. Chapter Twenty Nine. Held up. A few pale stars were in the sky, and the moon was over a vague gray peak. Deering shivered, beat his numbed hands, and looked about. The frost was keen, and he had not thought he could sleep, but when he looked about before, the stars were bright and the moon was not above the peak. In front, the buttress cut the sky, and although the rocks were indistinct, he saw the belt of snow Stannard had crossed. Since Stannard had got his party up the buttress, Deering imagined he could get up, but the rocks were awkward. Deering wore the railroad man's skin coat and a thick Hudson's Bay blanket. For climbing, their weight was an embarrassment, but he would sooner carry the load than freeze. Although he lay with his shoulders against Jardine, he was numb, and the outside of the blanket sparkled with frost. A tilted slab partly covered them, but the gravel in the hole was frozen and Deering's hip joint hurt. The worst trouble was, when he was very cold, his brain got dull and he hated to use effort. Yet effort was needed, for day had begun to break and he must cross the neck by dark. To stop another night on the high rocks was unthinkable, and he knew his luck might turn. If thick snow fell or a strong wind blew, he and Peter would stay on the rocks for good. Moreover, Jimmy was in front, and Deering thought Jimmy ran a daunting risk. He ought to get up and start, but he shrank from the frost, and for a minute or two he weighed his grounds for doubting Stannard. Jimmy owed Stannard a large sum and had insured his life. If he went over a precipice, the company would pay Stannard, Deering admitted the argument looked ridiculous. Stannard was highly cultivated, rather extravagant than greedy, and not at all the man to plan a revolting crime. Yet he had not engaged a proper guide, and his companions were trustful young fellows whom he could mislead. Moreover, he had gone down into a snow-swept gully to help Leyland, and knew this would weigh. Stannard had then expected Jimmy to marry Laura. Deering pushed Peter, who woke up and grumbled. Deering opened his pack awkwardly and pulled out a bannock and some canned meat. "'Day is breaking. When you have had your breakfast, we must start.' "'Unless I get a hot drink, I've not much use for breakfast,' Peter replied. "'When do you reckon we'll get down to the timber?' When I camp, I like a fire. Depends on our luck, said Deering, dryly. I doubt if you'll make a fire tonight. If I wasn't a fool, I'd go right back. Stannard's most a day's hike ahead. Then if the police have hit his trail, they're not far behind us. We cut out some ground, and on the rocks two men go faster than five. Stannard must find a line for his gang and us. 
Then I expect he'll be held up for a time at the neck. I don't know where the police are. Peter ate the bannock and put on his pack. Well, let's get going. The light was not yet good. Their muscles were stiff. Physical fatigue reached on their nervous strength, and at the belt of snow they stopped. The belt was perhaps ten yards across and occupied a channel in the rocks. The surface was smooth and hard, and Deering imagined if one slipped one would not stop until one reached the valley. A row of small holes, however, indicated that Stannard's party had gone across and up the dark forbidding buttress on the other side. Deering frankly shrank from the labor and risk of crossing, but he dared not turn back. "'Where the boys have gone, we mustn't stop,' he said. "'Tie on the rope and give me the grub-hoe.' Peter gave him the hoe. The blade was curved, like a carpenter's adze, and at its head was a short pick. The tool, although rather heavy, was a good ice-axe. In soft snow one can kick holes, but the snow was hard, and Deering doubted if the notches Stannard had cut would carry him. He used the pick, balancing in a hole while he chipped out the next, and when they got across he sent Peter in front. Their hands were numb, and where the snow had melted veins of ice filled the cracks in the rocks. The hold was bad, and Peter stopped at the bottom of a slab Deering had remarked when he sent him in front. I sure don't know how we're going to get up. Stannard got up, said Deering, and looked about. Thirty feet below him the belt of snow pierced the rocks. It looked nearly perpendicular, and the snowfield at its foot was horribly steep. In the shadow the surface was gray, and dark patches marked where rocks pushed through. A very long way down, across a sharp but broken line, the color was blue, and Deering thought the line the top of a precipice. He turned and looked up. The slab was upright and about ten feet high. He could not see a crack or knob, but he noted two or three fresh scratches. "'Lean against the rock and spread your arms,' he said, and when Peter did so, climbed up his back. Standing on the other's shoulders, he could reach the top of the slab. The top was nearly flat and went back for some distance, but the snow was hard. Deering dared not trust his numbed hands, and he tried the pick. The blade got hold, but he could not see farther than the handle. If he had caught a small lump of ice that would not support him, the rope would pull Jardine off the rock. All the same, something must be risked. "'Brace up good,' he said, and trusted the pick. The tool held, and he got his chest on the top, but now the blade was near his body, his reach was short, and when he used his hand his stiff fingers slipped across the snow. It was obvious he must move the pick, but the tool was his main support, 
and the effort to push it forward might send him down. Still, if he could get three or four inches higher, he might, perhaps, balance on the edge. His boots got no grip on the smooth slab, but when he used his knee, his clothes stuck to the stone. When his waist was nearly level with the top, he pulled out the pick and moved it forward. For a moment or two, the blade came back, and he began to go down. Then it held, and after a stern effort, he was up. The rock above the ledge was broken, and throwing the rope across a knob, he helped Peter. Half an hour afterwards, they reached the ridge behind the buttress. Deering's hands were bleeding, and he was not cold. His skin was wet, and he breathed by labored gasps. In front, the ridge went up, unevenly, to the neck. The narrow, broken top, for the most part, was supported by precipitous rocks. One must use caution and could not go fast, but after a time a snow cornice began on one side. The top, leveled by the wind, was smooth, and so far as it rested on the snow, was firm. As a rule, a snow cornice is widest above, and Deering knew if he crossed the line where it overhang its base, he might break through, but the marks in front indicated where Stannard had gone. Stannard knew much about snow cornices, and Deering wondered whether he could not have found some grounds for throwing off the rope and letting Jimmy venture on the dangerous overhang. He had obviously not done so. Moreover, he had brought his companions up the buttress. If Deering himself had meant to let somebody fall, he thought he would have tried at the awkward slab. In fact, he admitted that to picture Stannard's weighing a plan like that was theatrically extravagant. Yet he knew Stannard, who was not the man people thought. He was very clever, and if he plotted to get rid of Jimmy, he would not do so soon after he had taken him into the mountains. He would wait until he had nearly carried out his job and was bringing his party down from the rocks. Anyhow, Deering's business was to overtake the party. To wonder whether he exaggerated Jimmy's danger would not help. For a time he made good progress along the cornice, and in the afternoon he reached the neck. At the end of the ridge Stannard's tracks forked. One row of footmarks crossed a steep snowbank running up a peak, the other went along the hollow neck. "'All the outfit went up the neck, and then two or three turned back,' Peter remarked after examining the trampled snow. Deering nodded. Stannard sent them back and pushed ahead with Gillane to look for a line down the other side. When we get across, we'll see what he was up against. At the end of the neck they stopped, and Deering frowned. He had been longer than he thought, and a pale illumination behind a peak indicated that the sun was low. In the valley below he saw a frozen lake and a dark, winding band he knew was timber on a river bank. He had food, 
and if he could reach the trees he needed not bother about the frost. A Canadian grub hoe, made for cutting roots, is a useful tool, and he could build a wall of bark and branches, light a fire, and brew hot tea. The trouble was to get down to the friendly pines. In front of him a snowfield sloped to a spot at which two uneven, converging rows of dark rocks ought to have met. The rocks were the tops of precipices, but the point of their intersection was cut out, and a glacier began at the gap. Deering could see for a short distance down the glacier until it plunged across the top of a steeper pitch, and when he used his glasses he noted its surface was crumpled, as if it broke in angry waves. In fact, it was rather like a rapid suddenly frozen at the top of a fall. Deering knew it was an ice fall, and the waves were giant blocks. The rocks at the side were very steep and veined by snow. "'Nothing's doing here,' he remarked. I don't see Stannard, but he won't find a useful line. Let's look for the boys. They turned, and following the tracks along the neck, after some time went round a buttress that broke the front of the range. On the other side three people occupied a little hollow in the rock. One got up awkwardly. It's Peter, he shouted. "'Why, Deering, you grand old sport!' Deering gave Jimmy his hand and noted that his look was strained and his face was pinched. "'Miss Laura put me on your track and Mr. Jardine wanted to come along,' he said, and studied the others who did not get up. "'They've had enough,' said Jimmy. "'We were two nights on the rocks and the cold was keen.' Stannard's gone to see if we can get down the glacier, but I don't think he's hopeful. Anyhow, let's go back into our hole. When you wriggle down under a blanket, it's a little warmer than outside. Deering joined the others. A jammed stone partly covered the hole, and the boys' packs, fur coats, and blankets kept them from freezing, but he saw their pluck was nearly gone. "'What about the police?' he asked when he had lighted his pipe. "'We don't know where they are,' Jimmy replied. "'Stannard brought us up the ridge, but from my shack you see another way up at the head of the valley. I went over to study the ground and thought the climb harder than it looks. All the same, I imagine the police have tried it. Of course, when they got to the snow they wouldn't find our tracks.' but they know we're in the mountains. Then they're south of us? Jimmy nodded. On this side of the range, they'd reckon on our pushing south and expect to cut us off. Now you see why Stannard's keen about getting down the glacier. We can't get down. The icefall won't go, said Stevens moodily. I doubt if I could get down a ladder. My notion is Stannard knows his plan's a forlorn hope, and Gillane is badly rattled. The fellow's a common packer. Stannard ought not to have hired him, Dillon agreed. Still, we couldn't wait, 
and when the Revelstoke man sent Gillane, we were forced to start. Anyhow, I'd trust Stannard where I wouldn't trust a guide. He hasn't hit a useful line yet, Stevens rejoined. We're held up, and I doubt if we can stand for another night in the frost. I'm willing to go back and risk the police, said Jimmy. Still, we couldn't start until daybreak and would be forced to camp again on the ridge. The valley's not far off, if we can make it. We must wait for Stannard's report, said Deering, soothingly. When I was at the hotel, the clerk gave me a letter for you. Jimmy beat his numbed hands and opened the envelope. Then he laughed, a dreary laugh. In a way, the thing's a joke. Leyland's has something to do with a Japanese cotton mill, and Sir Jim writes from Tokyo. He's going to England by Vancouver and sails on board the first CPR boat. He means to stop for a few days and look me up. Jimmy studied the postmark and resumed, I expect he's at Vancouver now. Your luck is certainly bad, Deering remarked in a sympathetic voice. Jim's the head of the house. Dick owns him boss, Jimmy went on. His letter's kind, and if he arrived before, when I was making good, I might have got his support. I wanted to persuade him I was not a careless fool, but when he gets to know my recent exploits... Deering imagined Jimmy had wanted his uncle to agree about his marrying Margaret. Since Sir James was a sober businessman, the lad had not much grounds to hope he would approve his nephew's romantic adventures. "'After all, I rather think we'll cheat the police,' he said. "'They don't know where we are, and when we make the valley we'll hit up the pace. I've friends who'll help you across the frontier, and you can sail for England from New York. The drawback is we can't make the valley. Stannard can't lead us down.' Stevens interrupted gloomily. Deering looked up. "'We'll know soon. I hear steps.' Stannard came round the corner, saw Deering, and stopped rather quickly. "'Hello. We did not expect you. Were you at the hotel? Have you got some news?' "'I was at the hotel,' Deering replied. The morning before I got there, a police sergeant arrived. I understand he was curious about your excursion. Stannard's glance was keen, and Deering thought him disturbed. You imply the fellow knew I'd gone to join Jimmy? Miss Laura imagined something like that. But what about the glacier? Stannard hesitated and knitted his brows. I think we'll risk it in the morning. You see, if we pushed along the range, we might meet the police. Besides, we must get down to the timber soon. You sure can't get down, remarked Gillane, the packer, who had followed Stannard. We'll try, said Stannard, and turning to the others, forced a smile. Well, I want some food, and Frank might light the spirit lamp. 
you must brace up for another night on the mountain, but we're lucky because we have got a corner where we shan't freeze. End of chapter 29 Recording by Roger Moline